are back. You may have noticed that this program has something of a loose format, which is, I guess, is better than being a loose cannon, although <laughs> maybe sometimes we're a bit of that too. Uh, I'm still wrapping up some miscellaneous items here that I think we should get to in today's program. We mentioned uh, the show a couple weeks back about Fidel Castro being anti uh, anti smoking. I'm holding in my hands uh, a picture from New Scientist showing Che Guevara smoking a stogie. In fact, I can read the label. It's a Cohiba. Asks, what would Che Guevara have done in a no-smoking Cuba? I got this great quote from Castro, <laughs> courtesy of the magazine. They noted that Castro said of cigars in 2003, the best thing to do is give them to your enemy. But they note that cigar factory workers often get a couple free every day and that tobacco products are subsidized by the government in Cuba. Every adult born after 1955 can buy four packs of cigarettes a month for just two pesos each, equivalent to U.S. 10 cents, about a third the normal price. One of these days in the program, I'm going to tell my story uh, about Cuban cigars, but that is definitely not going to take place today. Now, I often like what the Center for Science and the Public Interest has has to say, but, you know, I think they're going a bit far when they criticized last week Southwest Airlines calling its tasty snack that they say in Southwest is served up with a little bit of love, calling it food porn. Now, it's true that pretzels and peanuts are, you know, are, are not exactly, you know, the finest uh, articles of nutrition you're going to find. They have a lot, of, a lot of salt, a lot of fat, a lot of sugar. But holy mackerel, food porn... You know, I mentioned this because I, I just flew on Southwest uh, this last weekend, and, and yes, I, I had some peanuts, you know. You have the option, and when they come by and they're saying, would you like some peanuts, of saying no. And the reason we, of course, like Southwest is it's cheap, cheap, cheap. And one of the reasons it's so inexpensive is it's not spending a lot of time with food service. It's one of those trade-offs, folks. I was standing in line at the market, and I noticed the current edition of Reader's Digest has uh, the face of John Kennedy on, on the front with an article titled, New Clue to JFK's Murder. Article written by Jefferson Morley of the Washington Post about uh, the possibility of new technology examining the Dallas police dictabelt that might be able to tell us uh, whether there was more than three shots fired on that day back in November 22nd, 1963. We told you uh, about uh, Dr. Cyril Weck's conference held in uh, Pittsburgh uh, last year, November of uh, 2003. And, um, and I won't you know, go over much of that again today, except that uh, the speaker who talked about this dictabelt evidence, the sound evidence, was really intriguing. And we wanted to maybe come back to that at some future point. But uh, I happened at that same conference to have sat across from the author of this article, Jefferson Morley, and uh, listened to what he had to say, and he is an interesting guy. I think we're going to see if we can't bring him on the program in the future and talk about this very article. Now, I was looking for an article, which I just now got my hands on, uh, sort of related to, to last segment's talk about uh, missile defense and the stupidity of it, uh, as seen by uh, genius Hans Bethe. Uh, countering the genius of Hans Bethe, we have this article from the Associated Press, March 9th, comments from Lieutenant General Henry A. Oberling III in a conference call with reporters suggesting the United States is technically ready to try and shoot down a few incoming intercontinental ballistic missiles with little warning. The Bush administration has declined to declare its missile defense system operational, 
as it had hoped to do. Nevertheless, the missile defense officials described the two bases, one in Alaska and one in California, as having an operational capability, even though they are experimental in nature. God knows I'm not making this up. Whether it takes minutes or hours to change modes depends on how the systems are configured when the decision is made to become operational, Oberling said. If the system is in the middle of a major software upgrade, it might take hours. To shorten the time, they're installing a system, he said, which will set them into operational mode almost instantaneously. He did not say when that would be completed. Now, since uh, the Russians are our friends, and, and so are the Chinese, it's hard to figure out where these intercontinental ballistic missiles are going to come from. Fortunately, we still have two rogue communist states left on Earth, one in Cuba, one in North Korea. So the United States is now planning to shoot down any intercontinental ballistic missiles that the North Koreans should suddenly develop with atomic warheads. This article notes, it's not clear whether the North Koreans have the capability to put a nuclear warhead on a missile that can reach U.S. territory. I presume they mean other than the Aleutian Islands. Oh, Hans Bethe was right. It's just, it's nonsense. But anyway, let's, 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 let's move on. Um, another energy matters. When I was in Los Angeles last weekend, I noted the Los Angeles Times covering the story about a protest going on in Burbank at the GM site of the EV1. Of the 1,000 electric vehicles that were leased to customers by General Motors, they have taken back all of them and uh, crushed 800 of them. The people who are part of the program are adamantly protesting the matter. I would refer you to the Los Angeles Times for its excellent article on the subject or a good piece they did on National Public Radio earlier this week. By a 51 to 49 vote, the U.S. Senate has decided to go ahead with oil drilling in the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge. I believe that still has to clear the House, but the House has a rather substantial Republican majority. We're going to have to bring, I think, next week, Vladimir Zaravika back onto the program. He has actually flown over the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge, and, uh, and he feels that it's probably not that big a deal if they do proceed with oil drilling in that area. He said it's really not very scenic. I don't know. He made a fairly persuasive case. I think I'll let him try and make it to you, the listening audience. But if we could get a good trade, some more valuable land elsewhere, it might actually be okay. I don't know. I'm not an expert. I've never been there, and I only know one person who has, and I'd like to hear what he's got to say. Apparently, oh, in Broadway, in New York, uh, Spamalot, a Monty Python-based play, is going to open up starring Tim Curry, Hank Azaria, and, uh, and, and a few other notables. We're going to try and get a report on, on what, uh, what this play is, uh, is all about. In the meantime, as a public service announcement, we're going to go to William Poundstone's Biggest Secrets and explain to you about the mystery meat known as Spam. Spam was invented in 1937 by the George A. Hormel Company. And although even the Hormel Company has to acknowledge that most people think that it's sort of funny or disgusting or both, they do sell over 100 million cans of it every year. I remember reading that Nikita Khrushchev actually, uh, actually praised the Americans for their sending of Spam over to the Soviet Union in World War II, saying it really helped the war effort. What is Spam? Well... 
Spam is mostly pig's shoulder with an admixture of costlier ham that is finely ground to add as a sort of a pate filler. And contrary to lunchroom scare stories, there are no tongues or organ meats. My favorite spam story in the minute we have left comes from Spy Magazine in December of 1994 when posing as White House representatives, they attempted to go around to various corporations and see if they could get Bill Clinton to do product placement for the company for a price. After calling up Red Man Chewing Tobacco to try to convince them that the president liked to dip Red Man and the Ballpark Franks people whom they told that Bill Clinton just loves the way Ballpark Franks plump up when you cook them. So they call up the director of marketing for Spam Luncheon Meats and then print the transcript in the magazine. After pitching that Bill Clinton's favorite sandwich is grilled Spam and melted Wisconsin cheddar, of course, they, they swear the executive to secrecy, saying, you know, obviously, the fewer people who know about this, the better. To which he responds, oh, yeah, yeah, we're not going to spread it all over the place. I'm going to go up the ladder to our executives. I may need something that's going to support its legitimacy and all that kind of thing. Well, anyway, I sure do miss Spy Magazine. They did some very, very funny pranks. We're out of time. I'm Douglas Everett. This program was produced by Edward McMillan. It is Radio Parallax, and if you'll stay tuned for Todd, we'll promise to see you next Thursday at 5 o'clock when we expect to have a return from America's foremost political comedian, Will Durst. Our thank you again to our good friend, Dr. Andy Jones, from Dr. Andy's Poetry and Technology Hour. Love me,